A spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Hello. This is the 77th episode of Curiosityness, and welcome aboard. I'm Travis DeRose, the host, and this episode we're talking about the DeLorean Motor Company, DMC. That's right, it's still around. I talked to James Espy. Sorry, James, messed that up a bit, but talk to James. He's the vice president of the DeLorean Motor Company, and we do a deep dive into the history of DeLorean, talk about John DeLorean and the controversy with him and all that stuff, and kind of get a good, you know, foundational company history of what DeLorean is and what DMC came to be. And then we jump ahead to the future, how, where the company is now, what's going on. Uh, spoiler alert, they're building some new cars, so check out for that. They'll be able to buy like a brand new 2024 DeLorean. So uh, we dive into that, but it was a very fun conversation with James. I've always loved a DeLorean and Back to the Future and everything, so I think you'll enjoy it. But uh, sit back, relax, and here is episode 77 with James Espy of the DeLorean Motor Company. And boom, we're on. How you doing, James? Outstanding. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being on. We're, uh, I mean, I think this, so you work for the DeLorean Motor Company. Uh, I have for a little over 20 years now. Nice. I mean, I think most people would be kind of, they. I think they'd be surprised to hear that the DeLorean Motor Company still exists. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, even right here in our own neighborhood here in Houston, where we've been, we've been in Houston since 88. We've been in this facility uh, for right at about 19 years now. And I can be at the gas station around the corner filling up a DeLorean and somebody saying, man, where do you get parts for that thing? And I'm like, dude, if you only knew you know, what's about, you know, a quarter mile away from you right now. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's so cool. You guys are still like, it's still around. It's still called the DeLorean Motor Company, DMC. It's awesome. And you guys even have uh, a branch out here in, in California, right in Huntington Beach, right by me. Yeah, we have a location in Huntington Beach. We also have one just outside Chicago, and we have one in Orlando for it. Dude, awesome. Well, I mean, so let's just get into it. I definitely want to tackle the whole, you know, the, the, the history of DeLorean, the, the story and everything. So where does the where does the car kind of begin or how do we, how do we first hear about it? Maybe with John DeLorean or where's a good place to start, I guess. Uh, you know, John DeLorean, uh, did not start his career in the auto industry at DeLorean motor company. He, uh, graduated, uh, college and, uh, pretty much went straight to Packard right after that. He had a little time at Chrysler, uh, but, uh, went almost immediately to Packard. And from Packard, uh, when Packard started to go down the tubes in the late 50s, uh, John went to Pontiac. And uh, Pontiac, uh, within the next 10 years, he rose to be head of Pontiac. And then uh, 69 or so, he was promoted to be head of Chevrolet. Uh, and after two or three years there, uh, he was promoted to executive management overseeing uh, car and truck, I believe, for North America. And uh, that, in John's words, that's kind of like going from being the quarterback uh, to the team owner. And he, he didn't he didn't like that at all. And in '74, mm-hmm. uh, he resigned and started a consulting company. And uh, everybody uh, 
expected John to go off and do something with his own car company. And in, in 75, he actually did. Uh, from that point in 75, uh, he, had a, uh, he had a designer in Italy named Giorgetto Giugiaro, uh, who designed the Maserati Merrick, Lotus Esprit, the Volkswagen Golf. And the shape of the car. They made a couple of prototypes uh, here in the States in Detroit. John was on the hunt for money to find a place to put the factory to actually build this car and finance the final development. John discovered, you know, that as soon as he started mentioning, you know, he was going to hire about 2,000 people, he was approached by a lot of of governments and other, other jurisdictions looking to have him put his factory there. And in the end, in 78, uh, after considering places in the United States and uh, in the territory of Puerto Rico, uh, he ended up getting a deal from the British government to put the factory just outside Belfast, Northern Ireland. Okay. So they gave him, uh, they gave him a, I've seen lots of different numbers over the years. I think the most commonly accepted number is about $177 million. Wow. Grants and loans uh, to put the factory there. You may, you may not recall, but Belfast in the late 70s, throughout a lot of the 70s and into the early 80s, uh, there was a lot of a lot of violence, uh, which they called the Troubles. Uh, if, you were, <laughs> if you were Catholic in Belfast in 1980, it was about 40, 50 percent unemployment. If you were Protestant, it was you know, 20 to 30 percent. Uh, there were people at the DeLorean factory, uh, who was the first person, who, who were the first person in their family in four generations. We're talking son, father, grandfather, great-grandfather, to actually have a job. Wow. So it was, uh, you know, there were snipings and fire bombings, and uh, the IRA was going up against the British government. And so the British government felt that if they could do something to alleviate unemployment and people had a job, it would keep them out of the streets. Okay. So Belfast really saw this as like an opportunity to get a lot of employment opportunity in in their area. Yeah, 2,000 people doesn't sound like a lot uh, in general terms, but there's a, there are studies that say for every direct job you create, like that 2,000, you indirectly create between another three and five oh. for people who, uh, for the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, you know, basically everybody who... Now that people have money to spend, it's going to open a business or go have to work someplace that now has more business. So it worked out pretty well. But uh, now that's the that's the that's how the company actually got its start. Right. So did it? I mean, how did things end up? I mean, did that plan work for Belfast initially? With you know getting that new employment, did things start to change around? It absolutely did. Uh, production. You know, they started hiring. Uh, you know right after 1978 and at the peak of employment in uh, late summer of 81, they had about 24, 24, 2,500 people working there. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, uh, 1981 uh, in most of the world, especially probably the U S which was the biggest economic powerhouse, the economy was not good. Uh, We've just gotten out of the, uh, Democratic presidency, the Iran hostage crisis. Ronald Reagan had just uh, just been elected not too long before, and 
the Reaganomics uh, greed is good era of the 80s hadn't quite yet taken hold. Mm-hmm. Interest rates on cars were as much as 14, 16, 18 percent, and that was a good deal. Back wow, jeez. And Motor Company had one product, a sports car, uh, that sold for $25,000, which was big money in 81. Mm-hmm. So in the winter of 81, uh, it was a bad, bad winter, one of the worst in years. The car industry was at its lowest point uh, since World War II, uh, or since just before World War II. Right. And so it was a bad, it was a bad time to be selling $25,000 sports cars. And <laughs> In the winter, of course, is already a bad time for sports cars in most of the U.S. But anyway, the, uh, when the car quit selling uh, for various reasons, those aforementioned ones included, uh, the cash register stopped. Uh, John gambled. Uh, John had to deal with the British government that the more people he hired, the more, uh, the more grants that he got. Uh, and so John gambled uh, in 81 that he could increase production hire more people, end up with more money from the British government that would tide them through this bad spell, but also make a proposed stock offering look good. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it didn't work. Uh, all the working capital was eaten up by hiring these people and buying all of these additional components to build these extra cars as he doubled production, up to about 80 cars a day. The economy did not improve in time. Uh, the stock offering did not go through because the economy was bad. And uh, John, in early 82, found himself in a big cash crunch. Uh, all of the working capital of the company was existed, but it existed in the form of about 2,500 or so cars that people weren't buying. Mm, okay. And uh, so by uh, spring, spring, summer of 82, John was looking anywhere he could get money. John was approached by a, a neighbor of his. And, the house he had in Southern California said, Hey John, I've got some, uh, got some friends that want to put some money in your company. And John was like, all right, great. Bring it on. Yeah. And, uh, it turned out, uh, that his neighbor was, uh, a informant for the FBI <laughs> and was, uh, trying to put together a drug deal, uh, under the, uh, under the direction of the FBI. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when John was arrested, uh, but John, once he learned, uh, and this is by John's account, uh, once he learned it was cocaine, he, he tried to back out. Uh, and they, he claimed, you know, uh, that they offered, that they threatened to send his daughter's head home in a shopping bag. Whoa. Uh, he, uh, they said that he needed to come up with $2 million and they would give him $60 million. And, you know, the unrealistic economics of that aside, John said, you know, look, I don't have $2 million. Every dime I've got, I, I put into this company. Yeah. And the FBI said, okay, you know, we'll front you $2 million, and then you can pay us back. So it was just like they were doing anything to keep him from getting out of this. Yeah, really? So he was arrested in October of 82 at a hotel in Los Angeles. So lots of your listeners have probably seen the FBI, uh, a little grainy black and white video in the hotel room. And, mm-hmm. uh, of course, when you're arrested, you know it's on on the front page as it was then. Yeah. Uh, two years later, when you've been found not guilty uh, by reason of entrapment, uh, it's page three of the life section. So, right. Not one that you know. You get a lot of people you know, just like you know, who don't know DeLorean Motor Company is still around. And say, you know, is John DeLorean still in jail? Well, John never went to jail. Yeah. 
passed away at age 80. Uh, this was back in 2005, 15 years ago now, March of March of 2005. Mm-hmm. And once he was done with the uh, with the drug trial, you know, it was nothing but you know fighting lawyers for the basically the rest of his life. Man, dang, such a bummer. And so I didn't realize. So you te- you mentioned this quickly, but his um, his neighbor kind of approached John DeLorean as um because he was already like an informant for the fbi so was he just kind of hoping to get like a big name for himself he wanted he wanted to get a big name for the fbi and okay. he was, was working uh the angle that you know if uh he was able to bring john down you know that they would uh put him in in the witness protection program he was he, he was already uh in trouble for uh with some of his Previous friends who were in the drug trade. Uh, there's a there's a great documentary that just came out last year called Framing John Delorey. Yes, and yeah, with Alec Baldwin. Yeah, it's uh, available streaming on Amazon, and uh, I was just on a United Airlines flight not long ago, and it was in the on the in-flight entertainment. Uh, so there's lots of places to see it, but it is it is a very uh, and I tell people it's a very painfully accurate story in some places. Okay, good. It's really well done, and it. It tells the story far better than I ever could. Nice. Okay. That's good to hear. I was curious because that it's a great documentary. It's interesting how they do it too with, with uh, Alec Baldwin sort of acting as John, but then you see the behind the scenes of him just talking about it too. But yeah, I was curious to to hear your thoughts, but uh, it's a pretty accurate, accurate film, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's just, uh, it it can, the guy who was the producer uh, is a guy named, Tamir Ardon, and he's uh, I've known him, you know, since you know, since he was a teenager, running around, uh, running around DeLorean shows with a video camera, <laughs> and uh, now he's he, he he's done this done this documentary for the Independent Film Channel, and it's, nice. it's just it came out great. He he has a lot of interests in it, and he's he's pretty much you know this is what he what he's wanted to do for probably last 20 25 years it's great to see him get to the point where he's had such success with it yeah cool good for him yeah it's it's an awesome documentary and then so just to kind of jump back again because this is kind of you know before my time and stuff but john delorean was even before he started dmc he was kind of a um like very qualified in the automotive industry and and pretty well known wasn't he it was a brilliant automotive engineer uh, had a unique knack for marketing that you don't typically see in engineering types uh, on uh, his rebellious in his in his career you know uh, gm was a pretty straight laced place in the <laughs> still is probably uh, john was the guy with the sideburns and the long hair and the open collared <laughs> shirts uh, right uh, Eight women half his age spending a lot of time on the West Coast, you know, hanging out, you know, in Hollywood and and things like that. So you know, it was uh, it was a unique, a unique individual at GM that uh, the likes of which you know we'll probably never see again at GM, and you know, pretty much you know the Elon Musk of his day. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, so when he came basically announced that he was going to build his own car and everything it wasn't really a big surprise people kind of expected it and he was he was fairly qualified to do this 
Absolutely. You know, the, the one thing, you know, that John probably didn't have, and well, and John admits he didn't have a lot of experience in, is raising money. Mm, okay. John, John tells an anecdote in his book, you know, that you know, when he needed to build a half a, uh, a half a billion dollar foundry in some part of the United States, you know, he filled out a form and sent it around and months later it came back with all the signatures on it and boom there you go build your foundry you know and it's a little different when you're a little guy you know yeah. going out trying to make money to, take to engineer a car from the ground up uh, hire the people that you need to do that the qualified people identify suppliers and get suppliers to work with you as an, an unproven and you know unproven manufacturer at least it, uh, you know really the whole strength of the project uh, is carried you know, by John's reputation. Um, that's, that's, you know, if, if you or I had gone to the British government with this plan, you know, we, we wouldn't have got past the front door you know, mm-hmm. because of John's reputation in the automotive industry. You know, he was able to uh, convince 345 dealers to sign up at minimum of $25,000 a piece. Uh, he was able to bring some of the best and brightest minds in in the, in the car industry to leave uh, other well-known long-established manufacturers to come work with him uh obviously we talked about the, uh, talked about the british government you know so he's uh, yeah he's very charismatic uh, incredibly intelligent well-spoken uh just uh as i said you know he's a you know, great guy you know in terms of uh, his ability and his skills Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, it's kind of a bummer that his, I don't know, almost his, uh, he's, he's like remembered for the cocaine trial. And when you really get the details of it, it's just kind of, it's, it's really sad that that was the case, you know? You know, uh, later in John's life, I, uh, I met him and got to spend some time with him. And one day we were, we were having lunch at his, at his home in New Jersey. And we were, we were talking, and you know, we, we rarely, I, I, would, I shouldn't say rarely, we never talked about the car company. Uh, we never talked about the car. We never talked about drugs. We never talked about any of that. Uh, wow. You know, and I did that intentionally because I knew that if, if I wanted to hear the same stories, he'd been telling everybody for the last, at that point, when I first met him, probably 15 years, that uh, all I had to do was ask the same questions. So mm-hmm. I was able to meet with him, sit with him, talk to him on the phone. You know, I didn't bring up any of that. We talked about current events. We talked about uh, real estate. We talked about ex-wives, which by that time we both had had a couple. Uh, <laughs> all uh, just other things. And one day at his house, we were having a conversation uh, about South America. And uh, I don't remember the actual context, but we were talking about, you know, how generally speaking, it's it. it it's a corrupt environment. If you want to build a factory, you got to pay somebody's brother to do the architectural work for you. You got to pay somebody else's brother to sign off on the permits and all this. Mm-hmm. And John had this incredibly uh, insightful uh, concept and idea about you know how to fix these problems. And I was like, man, you know, that's that's awesome. I mean, why aren't you doing something? Like that? He said, well, you know, yeah. I've got a lot of great ideas, but nobody will listen to me. Anymore. Oh man. And you know, that, that's, that has stuck with me for, you know, it's been 20, 23 years since our first meeting. 
And I was like, man, can you imagine, you know, being that intelligent and articulate and having these ideas and uh, and then nobody will listen to you. And that's just got to be so, uh, for a man like John, who, you know, who had, who had been to the top of the mountain and, and then, and then fallen, you know, knowing what it is like when people do hang on your every word and then not having that anymore. It's got to be, uh, well, humbling, mm-hmm. uh, I think is your state. Yeah, totally. Man, so crushing. And he was even he, kind of working on designs for a, another DeLorean or a new car even too later on, wasn't he? Yeah, you know, he always was saying, you know, uh, first time I met him, we were at lunch and he was sketching out some stuff on a napkin to give me an idea of, of what he was talking about. And in the back of my mind, you know, I thought, you know, this is really cool stuff. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, once you've lost couple hundred million of other people's money are you really likely to get any more yeah yeah you know john was an intelligent guy but i think he felt you know that if he had the greater if he had a great idea you know people would come and you know and and i just think because of the other trials not in the literal sense but i guess both in the literal and figurative sense the rest of the trials and tribulations he had throughout his later years, you know, just, uh, you know, it was a, an insurmountable obstacle to overcome. I used to talk to him, and I and you're too young to probably remember Richard Nixon as president. Uh, but I said, Richard Nixon resigned the presidency, the only president to do that. And he, uh, by, the, by the late 90s or so, you know, he was starting to become a little more highly regarded as an elder statesman. I used to tell John, you know, if Richard Nixon's reputation can be rehabbed, man, you should not have any problem at all. Yeah, right. So, but, uh, you know, John was notoriously uh, private, you know, kept to himself. It was only much later in life, in the year 2000, when he went to the first National DeLorean event that was held in Cleveland, Ohio. and. Uh, he was, you know, it was, it was, you know, like a rock star, basically. You know, everybody <laughs> wanted to get pictures with him, have him sign their cars, you know, do all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and I think that was really gratifying to John. And I'm glad he got to see it before he passed away, because I think he felt that he was going to get, you know, uh, not such a warm welcome. You know, well, what'd you put this slow engine in the car for? Well, what about the drugs, you know? And, you know, and. John didn't want to deal with that, and I don't blame him. You know, I wouldn't either. Uh, but the fact that uh, his daughter was able to uh, convince him to come, and then I think he, had, you know, by all accounts, uh, even today, you know, uh, he had a it was a very enjoyable experience for him and for the people he got to interact with. Nice, cool. Yeah, that's that's glad. He, good to hear that he got to kind of experience that and and feel the love because there's a there's a big. Uh, in a kind of a hardcore group of DeLorean fanatics out there, it seems like. I think you know, they're, you know, the group of people that are obviously interested in the DeLorean to one degree or another far exceeds the number of vehicles available for each of them to own one. Factory only really made about 9,000 cars. And I know, you know on our Insta- or on our, our Facebook page has got about 186,000 followers and our Instagram about 47,000. You know, so you just, and I think 
you can't talk about why the DeLorean is still known today without talking about Back to the Future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To- do you ever get sick of that? The, you know, the, the constant comparison of the Back to the Future car? Well, you know, it's uh, a love-hate relationship. <laughs> uh, I, I enjoy the movies, you know, I have for decades. Uh, this being the 30th anniversary. Or, excuse me, this is the, uh, this is the, the 35th anniversary of, of the first movie. You know, and uh, there's, I always tell people, someplace in the world right now, one of those three movies is on TV, and somebody's seeing it for the first time. Yeah. Uh, the internet, they're going to type in DeLorean and say, wow, you know, hey, it's a real car. It's not, not a movie prop. It's something, I can, I can own one of these. Mm-hmm. And so to have this constantly regenerating stream of people being exposed to the car and the brand is, you know, for a company that hasn't had a new product basically in very nearly 40 years. I mean, I don't think there's any other company out there that's got that, really. Yeah. So that's great, you know, uh, but I, unfortunately now, you know, I've been DeLorean fan really, you know, since the car came out, I bought my first one in 95. I got to the point in life where I could, I could afford one and in a position to, and then, um, so in the last you know, 25 years or so, I've seen, you know, less focus on the drugs and less focus on the movies and more focus on, hey, you know, it's really not a bad car. You know, it's it's certainly unique for the era. And that's, you know, that's important. You know, John didn't build a car to to be the punchline of a joke. He didn't build a car to uh, be a movie prop. He built a car because he thought he could do something better and had better ideas and concepts, you know, or, and someone else did. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, time has time passed and the stigmas of the uh, of the drug trial of course uh, i have are behind us and it's it's we're in a i think a kind of cool and unique position because people are starting to recognize the car for what it is and at the same time we still have this stream of people being exposed to it through you know probably you know one of the most uh warmly thought of film trilogies in in cinematic history Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that's how I, you know, I grew up. We had the Back to the Future trilogy on VHS. I loved it, watched it all the time. And then, you know, when I was turning, when I was 15, turning 16, I was, you know, looking to get my first car and desperately wanted a DeLorean, you know, because of the movies that had turned me on to it. And I had researched them and looked at them forever. But um, I think because of that movie, they've kind of hold their resale value or, you know, they're very popular. So I was able to I couldn't really afford a DeLorean. But as a, like my backup plan, I got a uh, Bricklin. Are you familiar oh, with this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So I was able to find a track down a Bricklin that was for sale local. Wasn't running or anything, but I was like still still has a those uh, gold wing doors it's kind of got cool styling almost like a 70s corvette ish so um that was like my backup plan there and i was able to convince my mom that it was safe because it was the uh the sv1 the safety vehicle one so it was a it all worked out i was able to get it and, and get it running so that thing was pretty fun for a while oh that's cool yeah that's neat uh you know there's a lot of comparisons between the bricklin and the delorean because of the doors uh and so you know it's it's unfortunate you know that the Bricklin project ended as it did, I think, you know, 
like DeLorean, had it been able to survive for another couple of years, we would have seen uh, a lot of greater things out of both of them in terms of product quality, you know, uh, product features, uh, and we would have had the resurgence in the economy. You know, Brickland, you know, was at a bad time in the mid seventies. You know, energy crisis. You know, uh, just the the whole economic doldrums of the 70s they might have had to stick it out a little bit longer you know but delorean i think certainly would have had greater opportunity in uh, 83 84 85 you know to really uh, i think if they had made it that long they'd still be around today mm-hmm. yeah man that would have been cool if they were still here today um well, working on it yeah totally yeah you guys are yeah so let's let's jump into that so what happened so after the after the um kind of the the drug bust and everything uh DeLorean has to file for bankruptcy, right? The company uh, filed for bankruptcy in late 82. All of the unsold cars and the remaining parts that had yet to be assembled into cars uh, were sold to a company based in Columbus, Ohio, and they moved everything there. Uh, for, from 83 until 95, 96, uh, if you needed a DeLorean part, more than likely it came out of this big warehouse in Columbus, Ohio. Okay. And, say 95 96 because that's about the time we acquired prior to that we had been in strictly in the business of service and restoration of delorean cars starting in 88 and uh, in 95 uh, the people who own these parts in ohio said hey you know we're we've been doing the delorean gig now for 12 years so we're ready to get out and so stephen Wynn, the guy that owns delorean motor company here he uh he made a deal to, to buy all those parts and he had a warehouse built here and Houston, Texas, 40,000 square feet. We moved everything everything down here. Uh, so now we, we're the, the world's largest uh, arts service and restoration facility. And uh, at any given time, we've got between oh, 30 and 50 DeLoreans just in Texas alone uh, for service or restoration. Wow. Uh, three, between three and a half and four million individual DeLorean parts. Uh, about 90% of them came out of the factory in 1982, 1983. Wow. And, uh, whole set of engineering drawings. So as we run out of stuff, we go out and have stuff made again. Uh, we were always on the hunt for new suppliers to fill holes in the inventory. And then Stephen's, Stephen's goal and dream and mine uh, after I started here in 99 was obviously not to sell dirty, dusty old parts out of a warehouse for the rest of our lives, but to to be able to kind of pick up where maybe John had left off and work on a program of continuous improvement to, you know, we knew, you know, nobody was going to give us $177 million to start a DeLorean project again, but we were fortunate in that, you know, realistically, we've got enough parts here in the building to, without significant expense, uh, and by significant, I mean, you know, five or ten million dollars uh, to be able to build about another 500 cars fairly easily. Because there's Whoa. so much stuff left. Yeah. If, uh, you know, there's a, I don't know if you've done the walkthrough. Uh, you're probably familiar with Google Street View. Mm-hmm. I've got something called Google Places. And we had a, where a photographer come in and do a complete walkthrough of our 40,000 square foot facility. And. So uh, it's, uh, we've got it online. So just like in Google Street View, you click on the arrows on the ground and you can walk through bill, uh, can walk through doors and walk around the whole building, see everything we've got. Oh, awesome. Uh, uh, I've got a website for it set up at DeLoreanTour.com. 
and we're okay. for like people. And so uh, we worked for a long time, and in, in the 2012-2013, we started working with SEMA, the Specialty Equipment Manufacturers Association, which is like the, the automotive aftermarket trade group. Wanted mm-hmm. to make a path for low volume manufacturing to exist here in the United States. Low volume manufacturing, you know, along the lines of someone uh, like Lotus, Morgan, uh, the old TVR in England, where, you know, which is you know, where they have a have the laws set up for that. Right now, uh, until this law eventually got passed in 2015, you know, all car manufacturers were treated equally. If you built 200 cars a year or 2 million cars a year, you oh, kept a lot of the, all the small players out of it. Right. So we, we worked with SEMA, our local congressman and senator, and uh, we were able to work with SEMA to get a, a bill signed into law at the end of 2015 that uh, created a, a carve-out in the federal motor, federal motor vehicle safety standards for low-volume manufacturers recognizing that a company building, you know, 50, 200, you know, or 50, 100, 200 cars a year didn't have the same resources as a GM or a Ford or a Chrysler or Toyota. Mm-hmm. And uh, the law was passed at the end of 2015, and uh, the law said that the alphabet agencies in Washington, D.C., particular uh, NHTSA, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, and the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency had a year to finalize these regulations. Well, uh, they just both finished um, this past December, so only about three years late. <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, you know, that, that's, there was a lot of things happening in that right. time frame. Easy to point the finger and say, well, you know, that's your typical government inefficiency. But, you know, in their defense, uh, you know, they had a change in. In the White House, which means a lot of people, you know, lost their jobs. A lot of people had to get hired and and find uh, kind of find their way around. Right. Uh, airbag crisis brought on by the bad airbags from Takata. That was, you know, that was more important than helping, you know, 12, 15 different companies that want to build a couple hundred cars a year each. Right. Yeah. Uh, Rightfully so. And all the autonomous and self-driving stuff now, you know, that's that's becoming, that is the future and the future is moving faster than the regulations can keep up. So that had to take precedence. But we think now we're on a good path. Uh, the, the public comment period ended a couple of weeks ago. And uh, uh, we're hopeful that within the next six to 12 months, we'll have an actual final rule from that point. We believe we could be as little as so another six to twelve months away from starting production. Uh, oh wow! Us, it makes it makes it really really uh, less than confident about the government's ability to stick to a timeline now, and so we're reluctant to commit to tooling or commit to uh, purchasing or a particular engineering development path until we really know exactly what these final regulations are going to be. Right. Yeah. Like a, Probably six to twelve months away, and then there'll be the ramp up period. Uh, you know, and lots of things can happen. We've got another election here coming yep. up this year, mm-hmm. and depending on which way that goes, that could change everything completely, uh, both both politically and economically. If if the economy stays as it is now, and we're on the 
what we're on the in the longest economic expansion in history right now. And you know, what goes up must come down as the saying goes. So we'll see what happens there. But if the economy continues, then we should be in a good position. If the economy, you know, stock market crashes, you know, this Chinese coronavirus, you know, uh, and I shouldn't mean the virus itself, but the economic issues it's causing in China, mm-hmm. you know, if China gets a cold, the rest of the world gets the sniffles now, basically, yeah. economic speaking. And if that happens, well, you know, then that may change the that may change the dynamic completely, and it wouldn't be economically feasible at that point. So we're we're hoping our window has not passed, and we're carrying on as if it's not going to pass. But we are, you know, we are keeping an eye on which way the wind is blowing for sure. Man, this is so cool! It's so exciting. So, it, so those um, these different you know regulations for a, a low production. Uh, car company would is it just kind of allowances and differences on like um, safety and emissions and stuff like that? There's really no give on e- emissions. Uh, any vehicle produced under this program has to use a current model year emissions certified engine that has also been certified for this program. So it's not like we can just go out and pull an engine out of a new Corvette and throw it in the car and say, hey, it's got a current model year engine no it has to be certified for this program as well okay. that significantly narrows the pool of available drivetrains but in, uh, that's the biggest emissions uh, catch which is you know not that big of a deal in the overall scheme of things you know like everything else all it takes is money mm-hmm. uh, emission or the uh, as far as safety it does give waivers that basically the vehicle that is being replicated in our case you know the 1981 delorean has to have at least the same minimum safety features as the original 1981 car did okay i think this is something that has given the uh nitsa national highway traffic safety a bit of a bit of heartburn let's say you're a guy who's going to make replicas of 1934s well, they didn't have safety glass they didn't have airbag or uh, seatbelts are you really going to let somebody buy a new car today then without seatbelts in it not very likely mm. so fortunately you know the delorean you know uh, was built with safety in mind you know it's it's uh, it's got it's got great side impact protection it's got great roof crush uh, so if it rolls over you know uh, you're not you're not going to pancake um already has four-wheel disc brakes and with some of the technology technological updates we believe uh, that we'll be able, as a result of that, uh, between the new engine and the electronic controls and the new brakes that we'll be putting on the car, uh, because it'll have considerably more power, uh, that we believe we'll be able to uh, uh, offer traction control and some, some more modern things that will that will add to the safety uh, that was not even, you know, was probably just a dream in 1981. Right. Oh, that's so cool. So it'll be, so, um, I guess kind of the goal is to have the essence and the feeling and vibe of the old car, but maybe similar to like a resto mod where then, you know, it's a bigger engine underneath and bigger brakes and everything. And, uh, yeah. And we're working on a, uh, a completely, uh, a, a modernized interior, you know, people, you know, that's where you spend most of your time when a car is behind the wheel, not standing outside looking at it. So, we're not going to change the shape. That's what people know. That's what people like. But the interior, you know, people expect, you know, backup cameras, Bluetooth audio, you know, uh, 
the ability to connect it to your phone for navigation, things like that. Um, you know, so all that will be in place, of course. And we will have you know, we'll have cruise control, which they didn't have on the DeLorean in '81. And we'll, we'll have uh, uh, heated and cooled seats. You know, so you know, there are lots of you know because you know, people who we want people to enjoy the time in the car. We want people to drive the car, and the best way to do that is to make it so that the interior is a very comfortable place to be. Which you know, and now you know, with cars people have been driving, you know, for the last you know. For the last decade or so, I mean, that's what they come to expect now. So you can't very well not have it. Yeah. Oh man, that's so cool. It's so exciting. And just so, and just to be clear for people listening, this will be like, it'll be basically a new. It'll be like a 2022 DeLorean. It's not like a restored 1980s DeLorean, right? That's correct. It will. Okay. It will now it will use it will use a significant portion of the original factory parts. Uh, that we have in, in, in the warehouse here. That's the way. That's the way we can do it cost efficiently. And I've had some people say, "Well, you know, geez, you know, if you're using so many of the parts from '81, you know, how can you actually make the car any better than it was in 1981?" And, and we tell people, you know, basically, you know, for the last very nearly 40 years now, we consider it as if we've had 9,000 prototypes on the road, and we see everything that goes wrong from use, abuse lack of use overuse so you know and over the years we've already addressed a number of the things that are known problem areas on the delorean and by being able to take advantage of some of some of the modern manufacturing techniques and uh the new technology uh that's available now that was not then we believe we'll be able to make a car that's uh that's uh has better performance uh it's quieter and uh a lot more fun to drive. Yeah. Oh man, so cool. And then, so how many of these do you guys anticipate you'll be able to make? Realistically, uh, you know, we're going to set. Uh, the plan is to set up a, a a small assembly facility here in our Houston facility, and we believe we can we can pretty easily do about one or two cars a week before we would outgrow that. And and that's you know, that's uh, so it, it 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 will be low volume production as the as the law mandates, uh, the law actually says that we could build as many as up to 325 cars per year. But well, I don't. You know, I that would be. I don't see that happening. You know, one. Um, you know, that's a lot of that's a lot of cars for a small company to do. You know, basically, you know, that's more than a car a day based on a five day work week. That's about a car and a half a day based on mm-hmm. a five day. We'd rather uh, do it at the speed of about one a week, so we can make sure you know that the quality is there, fit and finish. Um, and also, you know, we had to be cognizant of that. I mean, realistically, we have enough spares or parts here to build about 500. But one, we want to make sure that if any of these cars that we build or any of the other, you know, several thousand or so that are still left out there are involved in an accident, that they have parts for them. And that's one of the that's one of the side benefits of this. You know, like I said, you know, we've got. You know, we, we're going to spend five or ten million to fill the holes in the inventory, and what that means is a lot of things that have not been available for sometimes decades. Now you'll be able to get if you already own a DeLorean. So we're going to be increasing the availability of parts at the same time we're filling holes in the inventory, so we can start to assemble new cars. And then hopefully, you know, uh, you say, well, the next question I get from people is, well, what are you going to do when you run out of parts? Right. 
eventually the car will be popular enough and will sell enough of them that then we can just continue to fill the holes in the inventory as they present themselves to us during production and, you know, have a, again, kind of like the Back to the Future and exposing to people will have a, a uh, constantly regenerating stream of inventory uh, for both spare parts and for, and for future production. Whew, man. And so do you guys have an estimate of what the price point of these new ones might be? Realistically, we have a we have a ballpark of where we'd like it to be, and we've done some preliminary studies with bill of materials and things like that. But really, until we get the final regulations from the government, we don't know if our numbers are good or bad. Mm. If they suddenly decide to throw up something that says, "Okay, well, you know, every car, you know, has to have a a new anti-collision force field." installed on it you're like oh crap well there goes our bill of materials you know that's going to add another twenty thousand to the car right there you know so you know realistically we would like to see it uh in you know start start around 100 and then based on different performance or uh, excuse me based on different uh options upgrades uh some uh, uh what we call bespoke work where somebody wants an interior to match you know this cool leather jacket they've got or they or whatever it might be, you know, uh, to max out somewhere in the, you know, 130 to 140 range probably. But uh, that's, you know, that's that's all subject to change based on what the rules end up saying, which we're still waiting on the final ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Well, that's fair. That sounds reasonable too. And then so also when you guys got the, I guess when you bought the, all the inventory, DeLorean inventory um, from that company in Columbus, Ohio, did you got the the DeLorean copyright and everything to the logo and name? Uh, we're going to, I'm going to rephrase your question. And okay. My, and, uh, you know, uh, in, when we started using the name DeLorean Motor Company in 1995, we, uh, Stephen, I wasn't here at the time. Stephen reached out to John DeLorean and said, Hey, you know, I've just bought all the leftover inventory of parts and, you know, I, I'm wanting to change the name of, of my business and use the, use the name DeLorean Motor Company. And uh, John told Stephen, well, I hope you have better luck with it than I did. <laughs> uh, and from that point forward, we, we went back and we started to, to work to uh, acquire or and also register various trademarks, intellectual property rights uh, uh, to the point now where uh, here in, you know, 2020, um, we, we have a, we have a good portfolio of, of stylized branding and trademarks uh, in the in the U.S. and abroad uh, for the DeLorean uh, car and the DeLorean Motor Company. Nice, it's so cool. Yeah, the DMC really does still exist. This is so exciting. Uh, I I just got a text uh, from from my guy. He he's running late, so I probably have about another uh, instead of ten minutes. I probably have about another twenty five or thirty. Just okay. So you know. Cool. No, good to hear. Yeah, because we should definitely let's hit on the uh, let's talk about the museum now. Tell me about that. Um, you know, when we acquired all of this inventory of, of parts in the uh, mid '90s, it also came with a significant uh, amount of engineering drawings, engineering records. Uh, we have you know, we have a full set of drawings for every part on the car as I mentioned earlier, and all the engineering records. Uh, lots of internal company correspondence and memorandums and 
some tooling, some test equipment. And Stephen in uh, 2005, 2006, you know, he was, you know, he's like, you know, what are we going to do with all this stuff? And I said, well, you know, realistically, it belongs in a museum. You know, it's going to have uh, historical value to people in the future. And he was like, well, why don't we start a museum? And, you know, in the naivete, you know, that you that you have, you say, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's just do that. <laughs> um, so we, we did the paperwork uh, to start the uh, uh, start the process of a Texas a Texas corporation, and uh, we're hoping to get our five hundred one c three status uh, here this year. And uh, so we basically have loaned a considerable portion of all of this stuff that really has no uh, pertinent day to day value other than the drawings, you know, which which we reference almost daily, probably as we as we're filling holes in the inventory. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of uh, records on like who bought cars new in '81 and what dealers they came from, and because that's one of the things. The as the DeLorean factory uh, was in Northern Ireland, you know, the records were not as complete of, of production here in the states, and. And then when in the way the company, you know, uh, you know, crashed and burned, so to speak, in both the factory and, and the U.S. company in late 82, there wasn't a lot of um, priority placed on records of production and things like that. You know, they knew that they needed to keep all the financial stuff because they were in bankruptcy and they knew they needed to uh, keep all the engineering drawings in case they ever needed spare parts and things again. But even that was, you know, far off into the future, knowing how many parts they still had that had yet to be assembled into cars. So, you know, we're, uh, I mean, to this day, there is still no factory documentation that says exactly how many cars were made, how many were gray interior, how many were black, how many had five-speed manuals, how many had three-speed automatics, what day were they built on, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. So. Um, you know, we're fortunate that uh, over the last, you know, gosh, 25 years since we acquired this inventory, which we've, you know, as a as a side thing, as a project of the museum, uh, myself and another employee here, we've kind of taken it upon ourselves to try to compile all these various sources that we've either uncovered or discovered or had donated over the years to, you know, answer the simple question, how many DeLoreans were built, which nobody's. Really knows, and when you think about it, you know, obviously the factory knew, and they, uh, you know, based on some of the other records we've got here, they had fairly extensive documentation on every single car that was made. Mm-hmm. Uh, could we have some of those packets for a very, 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 very small handful of the cars? So if you imagine they had all of those for approximately nine thousand cars, where did it all go? Well, honestly, most of it probably went to the dump, went in the landfill, and it just kills me, mm-hmm. you know, because. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a big history buff, and you know, the history of the DeLorean is something you know that basically I've been following you know for eighty percent of my life at this point, and it's just it's just so fascinating you know to me that uh, when something new turns up uh, that it that it that it comes and we're able to preserve it one and then uh, we we're in the we, we scan everything so we have a so we have a good backup of it other than other than the hard copy right and as as we get time we put a lot of it up on the website uh and, and it's and that's just uh it's a neat project and that's you know, it's uh it's a 
for a company that really was only in production for about four and a half years, it's it's amazing how much paper they generated. Right. <laughs> we yeah, have really. probably less than five percent of it. <laughs> oh man, man, oh man. Okay, wow. So the museum isn't there's nothing to go to come visit to yet, is there? There's no physical standalone museum. Uh, we're fortunate at the museum. Uh, I kind of wear two hats here. I've got a hat that is my DeLorean Motor Company hat, and I've got a hat that's my DeLorean Museum hat. And wearing the museum hat, I'll say we're very fortunate that the DeLorean Motor Company uh, gives us some space, one, to store all of this in a secure, climate-controlled environment, and also to put uh, to put up a a rotating display of the things that we have. So when people do come to visit our the DeLorean Motor Company facility in Texas, they have a chance to see some of these items uh, right in front of their eyes as opposed to seeing them online. Because there's just, right now, there's just no way to display everything uh, either online or uh, or in the store. So uh, we rotate it frequently. And it's primarily you know, old photographs, uh, some videos, interesting documentation uh, of things like that. And, and then there's memorabilia. You know, there was, you know, brochures and things, you know, that either did, either never got printed or artwork for things that were never done in terms of cars and things like that. Uh, the company was planning to introduce a burgundy interior uh, for the 1983 model year. And they and there's one car that was built with as a test car with this burgundy interior. It's in England. Oh, wow. Private collection, uh, but we have a incomplete set of the burgundy interior pieces here. That's the other set of samples that didn't go, that did not make it into a car. So I'm, uh, you know, we have a steering wheel and a glove box and some interior components, which you know, just you know, they weren't just a fly-by-night company. You know, they were working towards a blue interior. Uh, they did end up doing some tan interiors uh, for the gold cars. Oh yeah, uh, were, and they did. Um, one blue interior car that's in a private collection in Monaco now. So there's lots of lots of interesting stuff, you know, if you're into the into the history. And you talked earlier about uh, people that are just nuts about DeLoreans, you know. And for the people that are really nuts about DeLoreans, you know, it's this is worth a visit. You know, it's 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 interesting to see the stuff and um, you know, putting back on the hat for DeLorean Motor Company. You know, I've been here 20 years. Uh, uh, I'm usually here six, seven days a week. You know, we're only Monday through Friday. But, you know, uh, when, when visitors come in and they're just blown away by everything they can see, you know, it reminds us, you know, for a lot of people here, you know, it, it, it's, a, it, it's a job. You come in in the morning and you go home and you kind of lose that, 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 that feeling, you know, that what you're doing is really kind of cool and you do work someplace, you know, special. And, you know, that's that's how uh, and so it, it, it's nice when people come in and are appreciative. Wow. You know, just, you know, just having their mind blown by the stuff that is still left after 40 years. Yeah, man, this is awesome. Yeah, I definitely want to come visit and, and check all this stuff out, James. It's just so awesome. I'm so happy that you guys are, are doing this and preserving the history and everything and, and still sharing the story and, and doing all this. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for, for sharing all this. I really appreciate it. No problem. Happy cool. it, 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 it's uh, it's fun, you know. Yes. You know, that's what my dad told me when I was little. If you do something you enjoy, you'll never work a day in your life. Right. No. Awesome. And then 
So for people listening, where should we send them? I'll link up to uh, DeLoreanTour.com for folks to check that out. Um, but if they want to kind of learn more about, you know, DMC now and what you guys are doing with the new productions and everything like that, where should we send them? Uh, for people interested in the latest publicly available updates on the new production, that's at NewDeLorean.com. Uh, for everything related to the history, uh, that would be DeLoreanMuseum.org, O-R-G. And then for for our day-to-day operations, selling parts and doing service and restoration and selling cars of the original 81 to 83 models, it's just DeLorean.com. Perfect. Cool. Well, I will have links for all the for people listening to click on that stuff and check it out easy. But man, this was so fun, James. I really do appreciate you coming on. I, this is just such a fun story. I really enjoyed uh, hearing it from you. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. I love telling the story. Well, there you have it. Thanks for joining me and listening into episode 77 and making it to the end. Hope you enjoyed the episode with James from the DeLorean Motor Company. I know I sure did. Uh, So thanks to James for being here. I really thought it was a fun episode and seriously enjoyed learning about that. Um, If you want to join me, Travis, you can do that. I'm on Instagram at TravDeRose, T-R-A-V-D-E-R-O-S-E. If you have thoughts or ideas or concerns or feedback, you can send me an email at Travis at CuriosityNest.com. And we're on YouTube and all that stuff. And uh, I don't know. We promote it all the time. Or I do. I'm the only one. But that's all I have to say. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you in episode 78. Bye-bye.